0: Hey everyone. This is Vegan Theology episode nineteen with Kevin and Sarah Hale. Hey Sarah.
1: Hello, Kevin. What's going on? I'm excited. Yeah. As always. You're always excited. I'm always excited to be sitting here doing this. Doing this with yeah, you. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, it is. And glory to God. Hopefully if if there's glory to be had at any point, <laughs> it goes to God. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully our theology square.
1: Yeah, we're doing our best. (laughs) We're trying. I think God God knows. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So welcome, everybody. And we are discussing the final chapter of Animal Theology by Andrew Lindsay today. So, hallelujah. Hallelujah. The title of this chapter is Genetic Engineering as Animal Slavery. Wow. A lot there. Genetic engineering and animal slavery. It's a provocative title. As we know, Lindsay does not shy away from being provocative.
0: Right. I love the guy. (laughs) (laughs) And it still blows my mind that this was like 1994
1: even. Yes. 94. He was doing really good work.
0: Almost. It's going to be close to almost 30 years ago. Right. Yeah. Right. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And we're still just kind of getting our feet wet with all the work he has done. Yeah. So thank you, Andrew Lindsay. Yes, thank you. I think I want to start by just talking about how when we use words like slavery, right, we're used to hearing those words to describe horrible things that happen to humans. Yeah. So I'm thinking of words like rape, kidnapping, murder, genocide, imprisoned, Holocaust, right? These are words that we're used to hearing to describe th- horrible things happening to human beings. Yeah. And when we use those words to refer to what's happening to animals, I think it's a little shocking to the system. Right. Like, no, 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 you, you cannot. That's a, it's almost like a sacred word. And you cannot use that word to apply to what's happening to animals. As with so much, I think, with Lindsay, it's intentional that he's using a provocative word that might be shocking to the system at first. But I think he makes the case that it is the exact same thing Hmm. that's happening, like what we call slavery when it's happening to humans, the exact same things we're doing to animals. And I think he makes a really good case as well that when you justify one, it's very easy to justify the other, right. that they are related.
0: But also what that's doing is it's actually equating humans and animals.
1: I think he does a really good job of illuminating that whether we're talking about sexism or racism or speciesism or anyism, it's all the same root. It's all the same corrupt root that needs to be weeded out. Right. It also reminded me that there's a book out there that we have not yet read or discussed or even purchased, if you can believe it, called "Eternal Treblinka." Have you heard of that? No. Our treatment of animals and the Holocaust. This is by Charles Patterson, but I believe I heard it or I saw it referenced when I was reading Norman Phelps' book. I think that's wh- who references this, that, yeah, the idea being that for animals, this is an eternal holocaust, Right. because Treblinka was one of the death camps Yeah. in World War II. So, yeah, we're using these words, and it might feel a little uncomfortable, at least at first, but, you know, let's discuss whether or not it's a justified use of these terms. Right. Let's read the first paragraph, which is, as always, he comes out swinging. This chapter rejects absolutely the idea that animals should be genetically manipulated to provide better meat machines or laboratory tools. According to the perspective embraced by animal theology, to refashion animals genetically so that they become only means to human ends is morally equivalent to the institutionalization of human slavery. There is, therefore, something morally sinister in the untrammeled development of genetic science, which admits of no moral limits save that of the advancement of the controlling species. Nothing less than the dismantling of this science as an institution can satisfy those who advocate moral justice for animals we reach here the absolute limits of what any reputable creation theology can tolerate. Wow. So he's really going up against this, as he calls it, untrammeled development of genetic science. This science without ethical boundaries. Right. Yeah. And one of the things we love about Lindsay is he uses works of fiction, classic works of fiction and poetry in his theology writing, which I think that really gives us permission as we move forward in in our endeavor here to go ahead and remember we can use story, we can use fiction and poetry.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's good stuff.
1: He takes from George Orwell's Animal Farm, and he starts with Old Major, the prize middle white boar, addressing a secret meeting in the barn.
0: Now, comrades, what is the nature of this life of ours? Let us face it. Our lives are miserable, laborious, and short. We are born, we are given just, so much food as will keep the breath in our bodies. And those of us who are capable of it are forced to work to the last atom of our strength. And the very instant that our usefulness has come to an end, we are slaughtered with hideous cruelty. No animal in England knows the meaning of happiness or leisure after he is a year old. The life of an animal is misery and slavery. That is the plain truth.
1: He goes on, Why then do we continue in this miserable condition? Because nearly the whole of the produce of our labor is stolen from us by human beings. Their comrades is the answer to all of our problems. It is summed up in a single word. Man. Remove man from the scene, and the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever. Man is the only creature that consumes without producing. He does not give milk. He does not lay eggs. He's too weak to pull the plow. He cannot run fast enough to catch rabbits. Yet he is lord of all the animals. He sets them to work. He gives back to them a bare minimum that will prevent them from starving, and the rest he keeps for himself. And yet there is not one of us that owns more than his bare skin.
0: And then he goes on, What then must we do? Why work night and day, body and soul, for the overthrow of the human race? That is my message to you, comrades. Rebellion. I do not know when that rebellion will come. It might be in a week or in a hundred years. But I know, as surely as I see this straw beneath my feet, that sooner or later justice will be done. Fix your eyes on that, comrades, throughout the short remainder of your lives. And above all, pass on this message of mine to those who come after you, so that future generations shall carry on the struggle until it is victorious.
1: Now, of course, we know that Orwell intended this book to not be talking about the oppression of animals, but actually The oppression of working-class humans by their indolent and unproductive bosses. Mm. It's a metaphor for basically the slavery of humans. Yeah. But Lindsay's not satisfied to just let it be that. (laughs) He's saying it could not have escaped Orwell's attention, and it has not escaped ours, that there is indeed a similarity between the arguments used so brilliantly summarized and rebutted by the old major for the justifying of oppression of humans and animals alike. So there's a similarity in the argument. There's a similarity in the defense of these institutions that whether it's pertaining to the slavery of humans or the right to occupy a people, no matter what we're talking about, it's always the same arguments. That's an important thing mm. that he's pointing out. Yeah. He centers this part of the book around this mistaken belief that we have to correct, which is that one kind of creature belongs to another and exists to serve the other. And he's saying, yeah, that that way of thinking—that one kind of creature is here and can belong to someone and is here to serve someone. That line of thinking has happened in the human sphere as well as the animal sphere. And so he takes us back. He reminds us of Aristotle. Mm. Aristotle is the one that we go back to. He made a big impression on human thinkers for centuries right. that basically animals are here for human use. And he used natural law. Like, again, this is, look around. This is how it works. So this must be just the way it's supposed to be. Mm. This is the way it was set up. By nature, animals are humans' slaves. He says that his, this is such an interesting argument. He would say, if they were not, if they were not meant to be our slaves, they would refuse. Right. But since they do not, it obviously follows that it is natural to enslave them. And I would just stop and say, Aristotle, dear, they do resist. Right. They do try to escape. They right. do cry.
0: Yeah. That's the same thing I thought when I was reading this, was that animals do try to resist. I mean, absolutely. obviously with farmers, you know, their animals get to know them and they trust them and then they get betrayed. But in general, a lot of animals do try to, they resist trying to get killed. Let's put it that way.
1: They absolutely resist. But we're, we're very adept at overpowering them and dominating them. And we have tuned out, we have become deaf and blind to the fact that they are protesting. Right. So I would just want to correct Aristotle on that point. That's not a very good argument. <laughs> the thing that we need to remember is Aristotle, when he comes to considering the right ordering of society, based in turn on the pattern of nature. He uses the example of animal slaves to underline and justify the existence of human slaves yeah. as well. He says basically these people are no more than a beast, and they are slaves by nature. Right. In a notorious section of Aristotle's writing, he describes human slaves as tools, none other than pieces of property, In short, Aristotle does not demur from using the same two arguments, namely that one creature belongs to another and one kind of creature exists to serve the other to justify both animal and human slavery. As for women, incidentally, they appear to stand somewhere between possessing some soul, that is reason, but not as much as men and having a kind of half status depending upon their rationality. Now, when I read this for the first time, I was thinking, okay. Now, all of our listeners, I know, <laughs> are just cringing on the inside. This is so anti-Christian right. that value is not intrinsic; that value is dependent. Like, and we're ranking who ha- who has the most value and who has no value and who's somewhere in the middle of valuation.
0: Right.
1: Like, this is so offensive to the Christian sensibilities, right? Right. But <laughs> that's what I was thinking until I read the next paragraph. Right. He says, this idea of belonging to and existing for, <laughs> Christianity in particular has taken this over and developed it to the detriment of slaves and women as well as animals. And I was like, what? Right. What are you saying? Christianity thinks this way It's just so interesting how it took my mind a minute because then, yeah, of course, he goes into Thomas Aquinas. Right. So good old Aquinas was basically, he just took everything Aristotle said. Yeah, he
0: loved Aristotle. I mean, so much of his theology is built on Aristotle.
1: Right. So Aquinas, for example, a few centuries on, he uses the exact same arguments. He just repeats Aristotle. He says there is no sin in using a thing for the purpose for which it is. Also with women, though to a lesser degree, we may observe a similar logic. Men and women are made in the image of God, and thus only males possess full rationality. Women are halfway between men and the beasts. In a secondary sense, the image of God is found in man and not in woman, argues Aquinas. For man is the beginning and end of woman. Some of us, Lindsay says, may not fail to see an echo of Aristotle in these words. I know that Thomas Aquinas still holds large sway mm-hmm. within certain denominations. Right. And this is problematic. Right. He's saying that only males bear the image of God.
0: Yeah, that was crazy to read that. I didn't know that. I mean, that's that's like our founding fathers that only landowners, white male landowners, could vote.
1: Yes, you're right. So, yeah, I, I guess I was feeling a little bit naive. My theology today is the way it's always been or something. Right. <laughs> because he then goes on to say, yeah, and don't forget all the Christians who supported the institution of slavery and they backed it up theologically right. with, with these same kinds of arguments. He says... Many respectable, intelligent, conscientious Christians supported without question the trade in slaves as inseparable from Christian civilization and human progress. The argument is not an exact repeat of Aristotle, but one that may owe something to his inspiration. Slavery, it is argued, was progress, an integral link in the grand progressive evolution of human society. Moreover, Slavery was a natural means of Christianization of the dark races. That's just so disheartening. When we, we institutionalize an evil, a dehumanizing evil, and then we sugarcoat it by saying, oh, we're actually doing them a favor. Right. We're civilizing them. We're Christianizing them so that they're no longer pagans.
0: Right. No, it's troubling. And I couldn't help but think of, we've seen even modern arguments where people support slavery in America, yeah, the institution of slavery, saying that the slaves were better off being slaves than they were being on their own. I right. mean, just that kind of thing. You're just Christians making that argument. Yeah, It blows my mind.
1: Right. But, of course, we know that there were Christians who thought differently, and he references Shaftesbury, Wilberforce, Richard Baxter, Thomas Clarkson, who regarded slavery as cruel, dehumanizing, and the source of all kinds of social ills. According to Theodore Welds, he said, Slavery usurped the prerogative of God. It constituted an invasion of the whole man on his powers, rights, enjoyments, and hopes, which annihilates his being a man to make room for being a thing. And I mean, I just want to pause and say, some of our listeners might be like, okay, what what are, why are we spending so much time talking about Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and slavery when this chapter is supposed to be about genetic engineering right. of animals? But we can trust Lindsay. He has a reason right. for setting this <laughs> up. I think at this point he's just trying to show it's this faulty thinking right. that leads directly to the justification of these evil institutions. Mm-hmm. So Lindsay explains where he's been and where he's going here. We are now in a position to confront the second kind of slavery I want to consider, namely the slavery of animals. When it comes to animals, we find almost without exception, the kinds of arguments used to justify human slavery also used to justify the slavery of animals. Animals like human slaves are thought to possess little or no reason. Animals, like human slaves, are thought to be, by nature, enslavable. Animal slavery, like human slavery, is thought to be progressive, even of benefit to the animals concerned. But two arguments are used repeatedly, and we have already discovered them. Animals belong to humans, and they exist to serve human interests. So yeah, straight from Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas... American slavery to why we think we can enslave animals. It may be asked, what has all the foregoing to do with the issue of genetic engineering? The answer is this. Genetic engineering represents the concretization of the absolute claim that animals belong to us and exist for us. We have always used animals, of course, either for food, fashion, or sport. It is not new that we are now using animals for farming, even in especially cruel ways. What is new is that we are now employing the technological means of absolutely subjugating the nature of animals so that they become totally and completely human property. New animals ought to be patentable argues Roger Schenck, professor of computer science and psychology at Yale University, for the same reason that new robots ought to be patentable, because they are both products of human ingenuity. Mm-hmm. When technologists speak, as they do, of creating super animals, what they have in mind is not super lives for animals so that they can be better fed, lead more environmentally satisfying lives, or that they may be more humanely slaughtered, Rather, what they have in mind is how animals can be originated and exist in ways that are completely subordinate to the demands of the human stomach. In other words, animals become like human slaves, namely things. Even more so in a sense, since human masters never, to my knowledge, actually consumed human slaves. Biotechnology and animal farming represents the apotheosis of human domination.
0: Hmm. Yeah, which is like the apex, the apex of human Mm. domination.
1: Okay, yeah. In one sense, it was all inevitable. Failing to have respect for any proper limits in our treatment of animals always carried with it the danger that their very nature would become subject to similar contempt. Now animals can be not only bought and sold, But patented, that is owned as with human artifacts like children's toys, cuddly bears, television sets, or other throwaway consumer items, dispensed with as soon as their utility is over. Mm.
0: Right, and with that, like you said, property, legal property, like that they're legally theirs.
1: Yeah, this idea that we think we have the right to completely change. An animal's existence so that their very nature is taken away from them. We recently did a show on turkeys. I think we've talked about it on this podcast a couple times. But turkeys, egg-laying hens, broiler chickens, like so many species of animals, we have so altered their biology that they're not able to stand. Their bones break under their own weight, much less fly. Turkeys aren't even able to have sex. like th- right. all of these species of animals have to be artificially inseminated. Like we've completely changed their existence. We've taken away their very nature. Or we were looking at these marine parks that take these whales that naturally swim the entire length of the globe up, right. up and down in a in the course of a year with their migratory patterns. I mean they swim entire oceans. Right. Naturally. Thousands of miles. And then we put them in this tiny little pool for the rest of their lives. Right. We've taken away their ability to do what they were created to do.
0: Right. Yeah, it's pretty sad. I'll just read from this. It says, The nightmare intensifies when we look further into the concept of patenting. In 1992, the European Patent Office in Munich actually granted a patent for the Mouse, the first European patent on an animal. The controversy over this has not unnaturally focused on the issue of suffering to animals and whether genetically engineered animals, in this case a mouse genetically designed to develop cancer,
1: Mm.
0: are likely to lead an increased level of suffering among laboratory animals. So there you go. We've genetically engineered a mouse to actually grow a pathology and Mm -hmm. suffer so that, I guess, humans can study this, But, of course, he makes the further argument, well, what what next? Like, the, the onco cow, the onco rabbit, the onco horse. Like, how much suffering are we going to allow legally? And, and again, this is the exact opposite of right. what we should be doing as image bearers. This is not being good stewards of God's creation.
1: Right. He says at the end of that paragraph, it signifies the effective abdication of that special God-given responsibility that all humans have towards the well being and autonomy of sentient species. Animal patents should not be given, not now, not ever.
0: Right. It's pretty sad.
1: Yeah. They're basically legal property, like you already said, which means legally they have no rights. Right. Like you can't challenge what's happening to them in court. Like, they legally are just someone's property. Well, and
0: especially the way I thought about this, too, is, like, say you have a natural mouse, kind of what you already mentioned about birds, like, we alter them to grow bigger breasts so, we have, so they have more meat. This mouse was altered from its natural state and grown in the laboratory to grow cancer. So someone could even argue, oh, it's not a natural mouse. We're not changing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The natural mouse has legal rights, but we've created this, I want to say, Frankenstein mouse, but we've created this altered genetically altered mouse and that's ours
1: right exactly
0: and there's still wild turkeys and there's still wild chickens somewhere
1: right. so yeah not only do they have not have any legal rights and they are considered someone's property but this is creating all kinds of commercial gain right for the one the people who hold the the patent right so just adding more evil on top, I guess, that it legitimizes a morally questionable line of research, but it also financially rewards those who carry it out. Right. The artificial creation of disease in animals can hardly be claimed to be compatible with the designs of a holy, loving creator. Mm. I would agree with that. Yeah the artificial creation of disease and animals that can hardly be called consistent with what God's first commandments to us were.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Basically to spread Eden all over the globe. Like this is the opposite of that. Right. It's so corrupted. It's it's like we take our power, we take our abilities and we use them to cause suffering. Right. Instead of to alleviate it.
0: Yeah, it's sad because I think we've said this before. God has given us dominion. We are the image bearers. And whether we're doing good or evil, we still have that dominion. So, this is, yeah, this is an abuse of power. Yeah.
1: Opposition to cruelty has been a long standing feature of traditional moral theology. Whatever else can be said in favor of the Anko Mouse. It is difficult to see how it can pass any test of moral necessity. To show that something is necessary, we have to show that it is essential, unavoidable, or arguably at its very weakest, that some higher good requires it, and could not in any way be obtained without it. Even within those sub of Christendom which have been profoundly unreflective about animal welfare, there is a strong conviction— that the infliction of pain can only be justified, if at all, on the most stringent criteria. So he's trying to say that any reflection on a Christian's part into what we're doing, it should just be a clear case that this is immoral. And he points out animals cannot give consent to experimental procedures performed upon them They cannot merit any infliction of pain, and moreover, they cannot intellectually comprehend the meaning of the procedures to which they are subjected. These considerations always tell against the infliction of pain upon innocence, whether they be children, the mentally handicapped, or animals. And he's saying, so the innocence and the defenselessness of animals, instead of that being justification, and instead of that saying we don't need to be morally concerned about them, those are precisely the characteristics that should make us exercise special care and extraordinary scrupulosity. Yeah, and like you, I think you were just alluding to, Kevin, this theology of dominion is what we've gotten wrong. And so he addresses again this bad theology. The Christian tradition fed by powerful Aristotelian notions has been largely responsible for its propagation. For many centuries, Christians have simply read their scriptures as legitimizing the Aristotelian dicta, existing for and belonging to. The notion of dominion in Genesis has been interpreted as licensed tyranny over the world, and animals in particular. God, it was supposed, cared only for humans within creation. And as for the rest, they simply existed for the Human Goodies. Yeah, man. He quotes Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie, and also even Pope John Paul II as two examples of Christians who are challenging this bad theology. Yeah, these notions. Yeah. yeah. And he kind of sums up his argument this way. No human being can be justified in claiming absolute ownership of animals for the simple reason that God alone owns creation. Animals do not simply exist for us nor belong to us. They exist primarily for God and belong to God. The human patenting of animals is nothing less than idolatrous. Yeah. And he doesn't really clarify, but I think the implication there is it's idolatry of humans, right? We're saying we are God. Yeah.
0: And everything... Exactly. We
1: have the right to do.
0: Right. We're playing God.
1: We're playing God. Yeah, that's definitely the thought I continually had in this chapter, is we are playing God and terrible God. We're playing a very evil God.
0: Well, we're destroying creation. We're not maintaining creation.
1: Exactly. I thought this was interesting. Uh, We discuss how it's been said that Andrew Lindsay has felt like his career has largely been... A failure. Mm. But here he writes while it is true that Christian churches have been and are frequently awful on the subject of animals, it is just possible, even plausible, that given, say, 50 or 100 years, we shall witness among the same community shifts of consciousness as we have witnessed on other moral issues, no less complex or controversial. And I just thought that's so interesting that here he's saying, yeah, you know, it may take another 50 or even 100 years, but it seems here he's very hopeful that we will, we will eventually come to the truth Mm -hmm. and to a more just theology. I also thought it was really interesting that he, near the end of this chapter, really, he reminds us again that... Kind of what I'm trying to articulate in, in my own words is that these same arguments for one kind of injustice are always used, no matter what type of injustice you're looking at. And right. he starts talking about the eugenics movement a right. little bit. And he s- starts by saying, remember, there is not a watertight distinction between humans and animals. Like, we love to feel like there's this watertight distinction that separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. Right. But there really isn't. And when we start justifying all kinds of injustices to some fleshly creatures, sentient animals, creatures with breath, we're on very dangerous ground. Right. Because it's very easy to then say, well, you know, it'd be even better science as if we did this kind of thing to this group of people that we don't really value. Right. And the eugenics movement was very... I think this is a part of American history that a lot of us, well, I guess I should only just speak for myself. I was completely unaware that there was such a strong eugenics movement in this country, and not that long ago. Right. Like 20s, 1920s, 1930s.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a little earlier, too, I think it was dying down in some places. It was losing its legitimacy by the 1930s, but not with everyone. And as we know... I mean, Hitler got his playbook right. from us, really. Britain, Britain participated in it as well. but,
1: And I, um, I feel like for our country, the added value that people saw in it was a justification to continue African slavery. Right. Because there was this line of thinking. If we measure people's skulls, if we measure people's noses, we can find what makes certain types of people special and then we can measure against that. We can genetically weed out
0: right.
1: the less yeah, desirable people. Right. This is a time period in our country where beauty pageants came to be a thing. Mm. And at the county fair, there were like better babies contests where they would basically have little beauty pageants for babies. Wow. And the fitter families. There was a whole movement towards people being very concerned and trying to measure up to this ideal of an ideal human. And Christians got behind this as well. Right. And he quotes several of them in this chapter. And basically the idea being like, let's breed out disease. Let's breed out stupidity. There are certain people who should have children and there are certain people that should not be allowed to have children. Right. So I think Lindsay is just pulling in that Be careful. Be careful what you are okay with, because it's the same argument that is going to argue for things that hopefully at some point you won't be okay with.
0: Right. Yeah, I love that. It just reminds me G.K. Chesterton had a book, and he was against eugenics in Britain. And but I I love the title. It's called "Eugenics and Other Evils: An (laughs) Argument Against the Scientifically Organized State." I just love that title.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think many really great thinkers have said there's a direct line between this sentimental idea that we can create super people. There's a direct line between that belief and the gas chamber. Hmm. Yeah. And we forget that having a variety of people, even people who are considered handicapped or mentally challenged, having them among us makes us better humans. Absolutely. And so on the face of it, it may look like a positive thing, but it's actually the deepest evil to think that we can play this kind of God.
0: But it's also, I think we're already saying it, we're we're quantifying Mm. something, people and animals on one particular metric. And we shouldn't be quantifying people anyway, but the fact that we even think we can quantify anyone based on their looks, based on their intelligence, based on their upbringing based on the color of their skin, all that stuff, animals too, you know, their worth. We've talked about this in other places, like animals have capabilities that humans do not. Mm-hmm. Birds can see colors that humans cannot see.
1: And we're all interconnected and we need species right. for our ecosystems to survive. 100%. Right. As we move to a close of this awesome chapter, let me just read how he ends the chapter here. Animals, it is sometimes supposed, are simply out there, external to ourselves like nature itself. Likewise, it is thought what we do to animals does not really affect us. In fact, however, humans are not just tied to nature. They are part of nature, indeed inseparable from nature. Because of this, there is a profound sense in which we cannot abuse nature without abusing ourselves. The genetic manipulation of animal nature is not just some small welfare problem of how we should treat some kinds of animal species. It is part of a much more disturbing theological question about who do we think we are in creation and whether we can acknowledge moral limits to our awesome power not only over animals, but also over our own species. Well said. Yeah. And he returns us here at the very end to Animal Farm. At the beginning of this chapter, I invited you to imagine the old major addressing his fellow animal comrades and complaining that their state was none other than misery and slavery. You may recall that a little provocatively, the old major thought that the answer was the abolition of man. In one sense, the old major was right. We need to abolish what St. Paul calls the old man, which is humanity in moral bondage or slavery to sin. Demythologized a little, what St. Paul might have said is that we must stop looking on God's beautiful world as though it was given to us so that we can devour, consume, and manipulate it without limit. I look forward to the final death of the old man, of which St. Paul speaks, both in myself as well as in other human beings. Then and only then, when we have surrendered our idolatrous power, which is nothing short of tyranny over God's good creation, shall we be worthy to have that moral dominion over all which God has promised us.
0: Mm, Amen. Wow.
1: So beautiful. Yeah.
0: Strong words.
1: And that brings us to the end of this prophetic book. Andrew Lindsay, just as I read through this book, I just felt like he's such a kindred spirit to us. He's like a brother or a father (laughs) or a mentor to us for sure. Yeah. So much respect for him.
0: Right. I can't wait for that documentary to come out too. I'm excited. Yeah, Yeah. It's going to be awesome.
1: Again, I, I think about it all the time. His theology is so sound. His Christology is so beautiful and well-developed. It's very traditional theology in many respects. Yes. It's very solidly orthodox.
0: And I think what's genius about it, it's consistent like we always talk about, but when he's done making his case, it seems obvious. Yeah. And to me that just speaks to its internal coherence Mm -hmm. with the word of God. And we keep saying he has a robust Christology. He has a robust theology. And it's because it's true, I think. (laughs) It just rings true. Yeah. It rings true for us.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It was so nice to be affirmed and confirmed that me- much of the stuff that we were trying to come up with on our own, and he bolstered it. Mm-hmm. He confirmed it. Like, yeah. yes, we're, we're on the right track. That right. was really nice to see. Yeah. But then he offered so much more. Right. You know, the moral priority of the weak, humans as the servant species, the suffering God—that service is what makes us unique. Right. All of this, we're definitely going to adopt it into right. our our it's theology. theology. Yes.
0: He's absolutely improved, increased our theology for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew Lindsay. We appreciate you.
1: Yes. We'd love to interview you, Andrew Lindsay, (laughs) if you're you're listening. Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) We'll reach out someday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. If you've been on this journey with us, we definitely love you and appreciate you and your patience, and we'd love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, and I think for the next few episodes, we're going to get into some Lent. We're going to try to focus on some Lent programs. And then I think the culmination of that, maybe I already mentioned this, is that then we're going to try to get into atonement and sacrifice, which would line up nicely with Resurrection Sunday. And then from there, we will keep digging in to all these uh, difficult quandaries that our biblical text brings to us regarding violence and those kinds of things and questions. So there's a lot to unpack, a lot to talk about. So thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah. Bye, everybody.